This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, oh, oh wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or... Like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R 102.7 FM. Yes, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse 3, Triple R's weekly attack on our most sacred, crumbling institutions. Tonight on Greening the Apocalypse, we will be talking about mushrooms with Alison Poulier. Those mysterious yet amazing little things that provide food and medicine across the globe. She will be chatting to us about their culinary uses and foraging and all manner of things in a little while, so stay tuned. As always... Co-conspirator, the undisputed king of gumboot German minimalist dance music and utterly excellent fellow, let's face it, he's a fun guy. Oh. Adam Grubb. Uh, spent no pun left unturned. No, uh, we spent that early, hey? Yeah, yeah, good to get it out of the way. Might as well. Yeah. Indeedy. And greetings again. Uh, hitting a hat-trick in the rotating seat, the seafaring pirate of the show, beacon writer and all-round muck-raking maverick, Sarah Colsey Coles. Hello. Hello. How are you going? I'm having a great day. Yeah. Does this feel unusual? We're in a different yeah, studio. Yeah, I feel really... And Jed's not here. I know. Well, I'm getting to that. This is unprecedented. We welcome to the show this evening the fellow who stepped up to be regular panellist, Jed McCartney's action stunt double, fellow <laughs> cycling tragic and all-round excellent type, Brendan Beeston. How are you? I'm well, thank you very much, Bushy. Indeed. How's the seat feel? Um, it same, feels the same as it does on a graveyard because this is our graveyard studio. Excellent. So, so, so it's you very are, good. Uh, you are an accomplished graveyarder. Um, yeah, yeah. A few years involved in Triple R? A few years involved in Triple R. Occasional graveyarder. Awesome. Yeah, about once a month or even less. Yeah. yeah so, oh, okay. Yeah. So clocking a dozen or so a year? No, nah, less than that. Ten, uh, maybe. Ten. Yeah. Groovy. Each week we like to kick <laughs> off and chat about what we've been looking at. And um, would one of you two dudes like to go first? Okay. Yeah. Um, I've been looking at an article in Orion magazine. It's called Dirt First. It's by Kristen Olsen, who is the author of a book, The Soil Will Save Us. And it's about something I hadn't heard of, but perhaps you two have heard of this. It's an article profiling Rick Haney, US Department of Agriculture soil scientist, who invented the Haney test. Do either of you know what that is? No. Never heard of it. Do tell. Do tell. Okay, Bring so it. <clears throat> the standard soil test developed 60 years ago focuses only on the chemical properties of soil. Mm-hmm. Haney began developing his test in the early 1990s to focus instead on the soil's biology. Mm-hmm. Based on the vigour of the microscopic community in a farmer's soil, his recommendations usually call for less than what the farmer hears elsewhere. So he's sort of... <sighs> He's making farmers think twice about applying so much nitrogen fertiliser, basically. But So he he did a PhD and he started questioning the wisdom of the standard soil test. And so 
he could see that synthetic fertilisers were being embraced by farmers who saw them as a quick path to productivity. The standard test determines how much nitrogen, potassium and phosphorus a soil sample contains. But that didn't make sense to him because he said it's not about single molecules. Soil health's about complex systems. Mm-hmm. Yep. So he develops a different type of test, which is quite cool, where you dry a soil sample to suspend the microorganism's activity. Then the sample's re-wetted and the microorganisms roar back into life and exhale a burst of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And then he measures the burst, which demonstrates the health of the microbiotic community, the vigour of the soil. Then he uses more water and weak acids, akin to those in plant exudates, to extract the nitrogen in the sample. The standard soil test measures only inorganic nitrogen, Mm-hmm. Whereas this, so that's the one in fertilizers. Whereas this test measures the one that plants can use immediately. It ignores, uh, so the standard test ignores organic nitrogen, but his test doesn't. So the Haney test is more time consuming and a bit costly, but it reveals to farmers how much total nitrogen is already in the soil and helps them to slash expensive chemical fertilizers. So I saving in one spot becomes, yeah. I mean, I know that you guys would be like, I don't even use nitrogen fertiliser or whatever, but the majority of the world does. So I think maybe something that uh, appeals to more mainstream farmers as a way of reducing those things is a good step. Mm -hmm. It sounded a little similar. I was pretty lucky last year. I went over to New Zealand and stayed at the Coanga Institute for a bit and... um, the lady there, Kay Baxter, and she took us out into a paddock and was doing a soil test that involved um, cutting down in like in the 200 millimetre by 200 millimetre square on the surface, but going down in 200 and 300, 400 millimetre increments and doing all these sorts of things like the soil crumble test and like root depth to um, plant above soil and things like that. And then um, getting very specific volumes and counting the worm worm numbers in that yeah. um, and that, and I don't know if it was the Haney test that doesn't ring a bell but it was kind of a, a, a much simplified test designed for people in the third world who couldn't necessarily go out and buy something mm. but once they had a piece of you know, paper or whatever in front of them that could walk them through it and that would let them know things like st- soil carbon presence um, you know, the shade of pink in the little um, rhizomes and things yeah. All sorts of stuff. Oh, what, that tells you how much nitrogen there is. Mm. Uh, I, I don't think you can do that without lab equipment. But you can actually, for about 200 bucks, you get yourself a microscope where you can look in into the micro world and see Looking all the, the crazy parker. creatures that live in there. Mm. Um, I, I, I lend mine out to a friend who teaches kids at school and they get so blown away by it. They're like, so how much do these cost, miss? And it's like, but that's less than a TV. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is crazy. Every handful is like billions of life forms. Yeah, that's, that's amazing when you think about like a, a teaspoon of soil contains what more microbes than humans on the planet or... <laughs> Awesome. It says that in here, a single teaspoon of healthy soil holds billions of soil microorganisms, including bacteria, fungi, mm-hmm. and other tiny life forms. Brilliant. Uh, do you want me to go next, Dag? Go for it. Uh, I stumbled across this thing by accident the other night. Um, me and the young fella, Shrubby, were, gonna, were pretty keen to watch uh, The Gourmet Farmer on SBS the other night, but we flicked the tally on early and we watched one of those other sort of cooking shows. And Australia needs more cooking shows. I don't think we've got enough. There's only like 300. Um, but this guy, uh, I can't think of the host's name, Adam Laolio, La- he was off to Scandinavia. And 
In the show, he prepared some food for morning tea in a office, right, a home office. I initially thought office was where David Hasselhoff would get his prostate exam, a hoff orifice, but uh, I brought the tone down there, didn't I? No, but the, the office is great. Okay, so it's a home office, but there's a bit more formality to it. Um, then there's a lot of benefits to it. So basically, someone puts their hand up and says, I will host a office. Um, and so they utilise a space that would be otherwise empty during the day. So that's, a, that's another little funny thing about our work habits is that we frequently leave our home for hours on end so that we can go out and earn money to pay rent or mortgage on it. Okay, so this keeps you at home. It also brings other people over to your house to set up a home office space, so there's no need to build new office spaces, and it's also free of charge. So if you're a, a small business that might work sporadically or, or trade your services sometimes for other services, not necessarily money, this is something that's opened up to you. There is a social interaction, a very definite and defined social interaction. You work with people who become your friends and they can help to motivate you. I personally struggle to keep focus if I'm working on my own at home because there's always like, you know, a cup of tea to be made or some washing to be folded or things like that. But I would probably do better at staying focused if there's someone there saying, sit down and keep doing your work. Um, There's a greater efficiency because the day has got a planned structure and there's a little um, chart on their website. And you basically work in 45-minute bursts and then you have a 15-minute break. You do three of those in the morning, have a one-hour lunch break, and you do another three in the afternoon. It's like Pomodoro technique, but a Scando take on it. (laughs) Scando. And greetings to all our Scando listeners. I love Scando. (laughs) Um, And you do shared meals and you do shared break times and things like that. But also, the structure that they can be bent and adjusted if required by you, the individual. So uh, it's quite formal but it's, uh, you're not locked into it. Uh, and if you wanted to have a look at it and perhaps have a look at how you might set up your own Hoffice network, you can go to hoffice.nu and they've got a really easy-to-use website. Um, I can't handle working with people that sniff. Yeah. You've tried me crazy. <laughs> what about those whistle, whistly nostril breathers? Yeah. <laughs> but there was, there's some stuff in here that possibly also might make you go mad. Um, some of the... Um, advised take a break things what they include so for stretching and massage under that heading there's drumming on the head and um, barefoot walking with food massage um now sarah did that make you feel relaxed and motivated and calm or very annoyed <laughs> makes me want to punch at him yeah see that i didn't quite get that um, i don't feel productive at all i just feel like adam just hit me on the head right <laughs> rhythmically what about the cross-legged pantomime inside of a glass ball what yes um then there's goofy and scientific seven minute workout ninja um what stuff. about just like having a cup of tea you can do that too or go for a walk yeah. but they just had some stuff here that you know has worked for some people before um but, you know, we're not yet. As I said, I saw this. It was mentioned on a cooking show. I went, oh, that sounds interesting. And then when I had a look, um, it's really cool. And it's a, I thought it was really good. A lot of the stuff we talk about is, you know, changing your work habits so that you feel more efficient in what you're doing. Um, and it's, it's community building and it's quite social and it plays to our simpler uh, instincts as a social creature. I thought it was quite good. Remember when that man came on speaking about work habits mm. from the Australia... Australia Institute. Australia Institute. Mm. And he he said that the out of all the OECD countries, Denmark works the least, mm. but are efficient. Very efficient. That's what this seems to be saying. So, hmm. Yeah. Adam. What caught my eye? I Well, we're talking about um, fungi tonight, and I don't know if it will come up, but is, there's the chance 
we we may fall into a discussion around the psychedelic uses thereof. Ah. And um, I can speak to that topic. <laughs> you really so can. <laughs> Hello to all future employers out there. <laughs> <laughs> hello uh, to all past well, employers. <laughs> yeah. A big hello to my current employer. <laughs> You know, before you launch yourself into, um, <laughs> yeah, ec- an economic death spiral. Uh, and w- w- the reason why I thought I'd bring this article up is because there has been a lot of um, research lately. Like, psychedelics are back in the medical and mainstream almost, at least in the, at the research end of the spectrum. Like, for the first time since the 60s, there's been human trials on these things to deal with uh, uh, post-trauma um type stuff and other psychoses and meta-analysis of populations suggesting that there's a correlation at least between mental health and psychedelic use in the past. They're not sure what the co- which, which way the causality lies, whether taking psychedelics makes you sane or people that are more mentally robust tend to take them. But something's going on there. And uh, so this article by Scott Alexander reminds us, it's called uh, Why Were Early Psychedelicists So Weird That... (laughs) (laughs) Be careful, kids. This is Because um, most famously, uh, Timothy Leary, he was the Harvard professor professor, um, who made uh, well-regarded contributions to psychotherapy and psychometrics. I believe that uh, after he became a psychedelicist and started the psilocybin research project uh, and ended up in jail and fired, uh, he accomplished a spectacular break out of prison. I think he was able to do that because he wrote the the psychological test that he then had to take, so he knew how to get himself put into the (laughs) low-security part of the prison. Um, But, you know, during his his later life, he uh, wrote books that had themes like how hidden circuits of consciousness that would allow us to live in space, uh, including a quantum overmind which could control reality and break the speed of light. Uh, Other people like John Lilly, who was one of the early ones, he ended up thinking, uh, believing that uh, benevolent and malevolent aliens were locked in a battle to manipulate the Earth's coincidences and with them, the future of the human species. I often think that. Yeah. And Carrie Mullis, who was a biochemist, um, who took one of the largest doses, very large doses of LSD in the 60s, ended up... Uh, being a global warming and AIDS denialist. Uh, But on the other hand, he did believe that he had contracted extraterrestrials in the form of a fluorescent green raccoon. Always it's got to be fluorescent something. (laughs) Dude. Uh, So do be careful, kids. Um, He also Mm. notes that, I mean, there there is uh, a 2011 study which says that a single dose of psilocybin, that's from the magic mushies, can permanently increase... Your personality uh, openness to experiences, the terms they use, and that lasts for the rest of your life. So, for better or worse, you will become a more interesting person. All right. Quick look around. I think it all worked out quite well. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Yes, do exercise caution, kids. We are not glorifying it, we are just talking about it. Um, Yes, indeedy. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. You are on Greening the Apocalypse on RRR FM and uh, we are going to be talking fungi tonight. We have on the phone 
Alison Puglio. She is an ecologist and nature photographer with a passion for all things wild, and in particular, things fungal. She chases the fungi season around the world, dividing her time between the mushroom seasons of Switzerland and here in central Victoria. And you can follow her through the forests with gen- with uh, fungi ecology workshops at this time of year. How are you doing, Alison? And thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm doing very well, thanks, Adam. And how is this amazing rain? Are you getting some of that down there in Melbourne? I don't know. We are surrounded by soundproofing, so I couldn't <laughs> tell you. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> you don't know what's going on out there in the real world, are you saying? No, no. We're, we, we're, you're, you're the nearest lifeline we have to it. It sounds, it sounds lovely. <laughs> well, I'm up here in Central Vic, and long last, I'll be getting some real autumn weather. So the, the rains are coming, and hopefully the fungi will also be coming with them. Uh-huh. So you've already been running some workshops, and it has been a dry season. But let's uh, we'll talk to you about those later. Let's just get some context on what we're talking about here. So there are, there are three main kingdoms of life at the macro scale, and we, we're talking plants, and we think about them because we, you know, well, they create the air we breathe, quite important, uh, the wood we build our houses with, uh, most of the food we eat, and we're pretty conscious of the animal kingdom too. Uh, because we are one, and also it includes cats. <laughs> Fun- fungi, on the other hand, uh, we tend to be a little bit oblivious to, other than some anemic-looking mushrooms in the supermarket aisle and the odd foot infection. Uh- <laughs> You're, spot on. You're absolutely spot on, and maybe a little bit oblivious is an understatement. I think we're largely oblivious to this amazing kingdom of organisms, and as you say, in Australia... We focused on animals, on plants, on, on fauna and flora. In fact, we call our bit of state legislation to protect them the fauna and flora guarantee. We don't talk about third F, the fungi. And I guess that's a big part of what I'm trying to do is to, to attempt or inspire people to think about this third kingdom of life that is intrinsically interconnected with the other two, with plants and animals. In fact, about 96% of plants and a huge amount of animals live in association with fungi. So that's sort of a big part of what I'm trying to do is just make increased awareness of the role of this third major kingdom, as you suggested. So, so what, what ecological role are they playing there? A huge one. So fungi do different things in the environment. They uh, are our major recyclers. We often talk about um, producers and, and consumers. We forget to talk about recyclers. So fungi are actually breaking down organic matter. They're breaking down things like sticks and leaves and branches, breaking down the lignin and the cellulose and returning those nutrients to the soil, making them available for plants and animals to utilise. But they also form things that we call... Um, mutually beneficial mycorrhizal associations. So myco means fungus, rhizal means root. They actually interconnect with the roots of most plants and help them access water and nutrients. So this, we, we, when we tend to walk into the forest and go, oh, there's species X and there's species Y and there's the euclid and there's some case here, but we forget that they're actually intrinsically interconnected with fungi in their root systems that actually help them survive. So would, would they even survive without the fungi? Look, they probably will survive, but they won't have the same resilience and health that if they had the fungi. So what the fungi are actually doing, for example, every eucalypt has fungi intertwined in its root systems, and what those fungi are doing are extending out the root system, mm. increasing their capacity to absorb water, absorb nutrients, are massively, massively increasing the surface area of the root. So, yes, the trees will survive, but nowhere near as well without their fungal partners. 
So just to clarify that, you're, you're saying as a result of that uh, relationship that a tree can actually reach out beyond the physical edge of its own root system to draw in minerals, water and, and so forth? You're spot on, Adam. So what the fungus is doing, it's actually forming what we call a, a sheath, like an ectomycorrhizal is the word. So ecto means external, mycorrhizal means like a fungal root system. It's, it's effectively an extensive, uh, an extended root system of the tree's root system. So if you can imagine the root system of a tree that then has this additional root system attached to it, that is the fungus, that allows it to access much more water, much more nutrients and into territories that the root system of the tree alone can't actually access. Um, hi, Alison. What does the fungi get out of that relationship? Great question. So it's actually, I said it's a mutually beneficial relationship. So in return for all this work that the fungus is doing, the tree gives the fungus a nice feed of sugars that it produces through photosynthesis. So it works both ways. The, tree, the fungus benefits from the, the photosynthetic capacity of the tree and the tree benefits by the fungus, from the fungus by extending out its root system. And the fungus not only extends the root system, but it also protects it from things like uh, pathogens in the soil. And fungus can actually give it things like uh, growth hormones and it protects it from things that want to eat the roots. It can actually use neurotoxins to, to kill things that actually want to, uh, you know, destroy the plant's uh, root system. So the fungus and the plant both give each other benefits through this mutually beneficial symbiosis. Yeah, that, that's just touched on a question that I wanted to ask. Alison, it's bushy here. Um, so we're, I'm somewhat familiar with alleliopathy. That's a, a function by which some uh, plants will make the soil around them uninhabitable to competition. Is there any way that this um, two-way relationship, is there any um, mycorrhizal uh, relationship which will actually be able to protect, not just protect the plant that uh, is its host, but actually to make it very unpleasant for other plants to uh, try and pioneer that area? Another great question, and this is something that's been fairly uh, unresearched in Australia, but certainly they think that fungi have this amazing arsenal or collection of different chemicals that can actually deter other fungi, for example, from invading their space or other invertebrates from accessing the, the plant's root system and, and, and compromising it or destroying it some way. So, look, I don't have a definitive answer to your, your great question, but certainly they think that fungi can actually deter other fungi or other invertebra invertebrates from accessing the tree's root system that it forms a relationship with. Wow. Yeah, crazy stuff. Well, now, it, I, is, well it is. It's very Avatar. It, it, I just think of that film Avatar. I mean, this is much better than Avatar. Um, yeah, and it is. It's heaps better. It doesn't rely. It doesn't rely on special effects and a really, really basic, poor script. But it is visually amazing too. And um, you are a photographer of all things fungal. And, and it, it, we mentioned that not a lot of people, you know, think about fungi, but the ones that do often get a little bit obsessed. It, what is that? Is that the beauty of them or is it like just exploring those hidden spaces? What do you think is going on there? Uh, good question. I think it's all of those things. I mean, I think you're, you're spot on. They're an amazingly aesthetic subject. I mean, they're seriously kooky. Like you've got these <laughs> things that pop up for, you know, a day or an hour or a couple of days and these dark forms, like they're not always just this classic mushroom form. Often they appear as like crazy lattice balls or as clubs or antlers or corals or these other strange forms and so I think a big part of it is their 
their curiousness, their strange bizarreness, their ephemeral nature. They appear, then suddenly disappear. Like I think that also evokes a curiosity. Like they come and then they go. And what are they about? What are they actually doing there in the landscape? I think it's both a combination of their ephemerality, like this this, this quality of being there just for a few short moments, but also their aesthetic quality. But also I think because we haven't sort of incorporated them into our consciousness like as you said earlier we're, we're very much aware of, of fauna and flora but we haven't really brought fungi into our awareness or consciousness like what are they doing so i think all these reasons combined do sort of can create quite a an obsessive or passionate interest in fungi for sure for, for me Alison, it kicked off with going to your workshops about two years ago and yeah. then i um I watched a YouTube video where cordyceps, I think, invaded oh. the brain of an ant and made it climb to the top of a tree and then its head exploded and sent the fungi spores across the forest. And I thought, I wonder if we could do that to the politicians, like somehow infect them with Look something on, that makes them climb it. high and jump off. Or <laughs> No. But also, um, since going to your workshops and becoming obsessed with fungi, I accidentally tried to take my um, open-air mushroom knife into county court last week. Like Uh-oh. I didn't even realise that I carry it everywhere with me now. And the That's court... a really good habit. <laughs> <laughs> the court security <laughs> guard, do you know you have a knife in your bag? I'm like, oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. And I think you should resist the idiocy of these laws about carrying <laughs> knives because, you know, like, I mean, there's also fungi out there that need to be sort of gently removed with a knife. I mean, it's not all about stabbing someone on King Street, is it? I mean, this is kind of idiocy. Like, <laughs> resist it, I say. Totally. I mean, Hello to all our King Street listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think, that, as you mentioned, in the cordyceps, the fungi that are actually uh, preying on invertebrates, so preying on, you know, butterfly larvae and moth larvae and ants and wasps and things that live in the soil and, and parasitising them, like actually consuming their nutrients. And then like that's, that's a really bizarre and extreme and crazy way of living. And I think, as you suggested, that from the Attenborough clip, they really capture your imagination. You realise the the pervasiveness and the and the power of these incredible organisms largely go unseen. It was just like such good design. Yeah, I agree. It is, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, Alison, we're gonna, we, we, shortly we'll go to a track, but we'll come back and talk more about edible fungies and, and a few other things. But what, have you, over the years, have you got a favourite or a, an extremely interesting fungi that you can sort of you know, talk to our listeners about? Look, I've got down to my short list of five and a half thousand. Right now, in this moment, there's um, a whole lot of ghost fungi appearing on the trees all over Victoria. So, ghost fungi, or Omphalotus nidiformis, if you want the Latin name, they appear as these um, big clusters of these beautiful white fungi that look like the oyster mushrooms we buy in the supermarket, actually. They appear on the base of eucalypt trunks and other stumps and other trees at this time of year. And if you take a forest walk at night, you'll see them grow, glow this amazing kind of... Remember Kryptonite? Was that Superman? Do I? Was that I can't remember which one that it was. That was Superman. That was Superman. There you go. And they glow this fantastic kryptonite green. So right this minute, that's sort of up the top of my 5,500 list. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR.
You're on Green in the Apocalypse on Triple R FM, and tonight we are talking with fungi ecologist and forager and photographer Alison Pulio. Alison, one thing we realised we neglected to talk about is what the difference is between a mushroom and a fungi more generally. Could you could you fill us in there? That's a really good question. So. A mushroom is just the reproductive part of a fungus. So if you think of a tree and the entirety of the tree with its branches and leaves and roots and everything, and then you've got the flower or the reproductive part, and that's what the fungus is. It's just the reproductive bit. And the actual fungus consists of the reproductive bit plus all of this amazing network of what we call mycelium under the soil. So I'm sure, Adam, you've scratched around in the, in the compost heap or the leaves and you've seen this feathery white kind of these, um, what would you call like cotton wool? Have you seen that? Or spider webs under the soil? Have you mm-hmm. seen that when you've scratched around under most the, days, the most leaves? Most days, most days. It moves in really yeah. quickly on a firewood pile. Once it rains, your firewood pile can start to take it on board. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the actual fungus or the, what we call the vegetative part of the fungus. It consists of this wonderful tapestry or matrix or scaffold of these fibres. And when it wants to reproduce, it shoots up its mushroom or what the scientists call its sporophore, which means its spore-bearing body, which is that, that mushroom or that, that fruit body that we see. So that's the reproductive bit, but the whole fungus is all that bit we see under the soil as well, or we don't often see, I should say, under the soil as well. So, like, it's a little bit akin to the apple is to the apple tree, uh, the mushroom or the... I'm not going to have a go at re-saying what you just said, the spore... Anyway, the spore the, form, yes, it's, yes, it's the yep. fruiting body, and um, like the apple tree, that's generally the bit, if it's edible, um, the bit that we eat. How, how exactly. Dan- how, how dangerous is it to um, go out and forage for mushrooms? Oh, well, that's like a bit, that's like a bit like asking how long's a piece of string. You know, mm. like, if you know what you're looking for and you know, if you're a good, if you're a good observer and you know what features to look for in, uh, if you know how to recognise different fungi and, and what features such as the nature of the cap and the stipe, which is the stalk and what colours and textures and shapes and forms they are, then maybe that risk is small. But if you really don't know what you're looking for, then of course there's a risk that you're going to get a poisonous mushroom. And certainly there are lots of poisonings every year in Australia and the one that causes most poisonings is the one that resembles the classic field mushroom the the white mushroom with the pink or brown gears underneath. Unfortunately it's got a a doppelganger or a lookalike toxic species that people often confuse it with but uh, uh, fortunately it only is what we call a gastrointestinal toxin it just causes food poisoning rather than actually destroying your cells and breaking down your organs and killing you in the process. That's worth touching on, isn't it? Because in, it, sometimes when you talk about food poisoning, um, sometimes it's just a, a reaction that your body has, but sometimes uh, getting the wrong mushroom, I mean, that's literally your organs starting to decay and you're becoming part of that fungal ecology, aren't you? <laughs> exactly, Adam, you're spot on. I mean, there's a whole different suite of, uh, of fungal toxins and some, like the one that the yellow stainer has, it's sort of up the milder end. You just get a case of, well, it could still be fairly severe food poisoning, but basically once you uh, get that substance out of your body <laughs> by whatever orifice it wants to come out of, once you've got rid of it, you're, you'll make a full recovery. But then there's other poisons that are much more severe and can actually destroy your liver and kidneys and you can end up in a very severe situation of requiring dialysis or even worse, you might not actually recover at all and die.
toxins. But um, so there is this whole suite of different fungal toxins. But I mean, yeah, in terms of the risk, if you stick with a couple of really familiar ones that you know really well, then the risk, of course, is minimised. But you also you need to know not just the edible ones, but also the toxic doppelganger, the ones that you can confuse them with. That's the critical part. Um, Alison, I've got European heritage. Is it safer for me? Uh, what, in genes? Europe or in Australia? Uh, I just mean, isn't there, am I more... Immune. Do, can I process mushrooms better? <laughs> Look, I, I'm not sure that your um, your constitution is all that different. It's more that a lot of continental Europeans have a whole lot more knowledge about fungi because you've got this long heritage, this old cultural connection with fungi that we don't tend to have unless unless we're Indigenous Australians. So I'm not sure that it's so much to do with your physiology. <laughs> so I should keep using the your, your uh, fungi map app on my phone. To be on the oh, safe side. Oh, that's a good start. It's yeah, a that's a good start. Um, could you tell it us is. about the fung, the Swiss fungi police? Oh, the fungi police, the pills controller—they're fantastic. I mean, they—they have to be seriously among the kookiest bunch of people you're ever likely to encounter. <laughs> <laughs> like these are people who spend an inordinate amount of time just getting intimate with mushrooms. They get so intimate with them that you can go along to these folk with a basket full of mushrooms and they'll pluck out anything that's toxic that's likely to give you an almighty stomachache or even worse, put you in the grave, and they'll send you home with a basket full of edible ones. So these guys and women have spent months and years just researching and looking at fungi and getting familiar with them, and they've, they've passed qualifications, like they all have to be sort of certified pills controller or mushroom police and it's this amazing free service where you go along and they can differentiate what you've got as edible fungi or toxic fungi so it goes to show i mean you're lucky to have that european heritage because perhaps you've got the special gene to become a pills controller <laughs> <laughs> but there's certainly i mean i think it's just to do with having this very old cultural heritage in connection with fungi that we as i say we don't tend to have that in australia unless you've got you know an aboriginal uh, background and even then most of that knowledge now is really pretty much lost unfortunately Mm. um there are i understand like tens of thousands of species that have never even been catalogued in australia and a particular hotspot for that fungal diversity is central victoria and that yeah. is where you run your workshops. What kind of varieties, including edible ones, do people do you show people on your on your walks? Look, you're absolutely. We think we've got we've named about fifteen thousand species of fungi in Australia. That includes about four thousand species of lichens, which are fungi as well. But they think that could increase by an order of magnitude. Like, we, in other words, we could have one hundred and fifty thousand or two hundred thousand species of fungi in Australia. Like most of them are yet to be even, you know, identified or given a proper name. And you're right here in Central Victoria, you've got a real diversity of different uh, tree species and plant species, more generally diversity of habitat types, of microclimates, and the more diversity, the more botanical diversity and the more diversity in microclimates, the greater the fungal diversity. So you're absolutely spot on. Here in Central Vic, there's lots and lots of different fungi, including edible species, and that's why it's a great place to run, run workshops. But also the Otways, that's another fantastic spot. And, of course, Tasmania is another fantastic spot as well. But in, in Central Vic, we do know of 
many edible species. And I think particularly you'll find that most foragers, those looking for edible fungi, you'll find them typically in the exotic pine plantations rather than in the native Australian bush. The reason being is that those exotic pine plantations have exotic fungi and the Europeans knew a lot about which is edible and which, which is toxic. So we have a better bet of finding edible fungi and knowing that they're edible in the pine plantations than we do in the native Australian bush. That's amazing. That's bushy here. I was actually going to touch on that. I live in the Macedon Ranges, and there'd, there's, there'd been a story that I'd heard for, for years that the, the pine plantations up there were prolific with pine mushrooms because some of the tree stock to plant out those plantations had come from Europe inoculated uh, with, with pine mushrooms. Is that what we're looking at when you talk about that? or? Absolutely. So the forests know they want to produce a really fantastic crop of pine trees and they realise that they'll grow much better and much faster and much with much greater resilience if they actually inoculate them with their native fungi. So these are, these are exotic trees and they use things like the... Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the red one with the white spots, the fly agaric, no, the, the classic veritile mushroom. That one, along with things like the slippery jack, you might have seen that one, Swalus luteus, which has the brown slimy cap on it, and others like the pine mushroom, that's the orange one that stains green when you bruise it. Like they all form relationships with those pine trees, extend out their root systems and allow them to grow more quickly and with better growth than if they didn't have those fungi. And the great benefit is that some of those, such as the, the slippery jack and the pine mushroom, they're edible as well. So they provide this double benefit of servicing the trees, but also servicing homo sapiens and giving us something really tasty to eat. Awesome. Now, I, I think because of all the unknown species and the chances of lookalikes and the non-transferal of knowledge from Europe and the loss of that indigenous knowledge about edible varieties in Australia to a large extent, unfortunately, like just like, yeah, cry over your your um, breakfast of crappy white mushrooms over that one. But um, no one's been brave yet to write a book about edible mushrooms in Australia before. Uh, and yet I believe you have finished a draft uh, on the very f of the very first one. Could you tell us briefly about that? Yeah, almost. We're actually starting a draft. So, so we haven't finished it. We're just the three of us in here. We've got a, an expert mycologist and a chef. And, and I, who are actually putting together a book over the next few years. And the, the idea with fungi is that in this fast-forward world that we live in now, we're going to slow things down. So rather than producing a book with 300 or 400 or 500 pictures of different of fungi, we're going to start just with 10. So the idea is you don't learn all these dozens or hundreds of species. You just learn one fungus really, really well. You get to know it in all its permutations and combinations and variations and how it looks under different climatic conditions, under different, you know, in different habitats and different scenarios over the years. And then you start on a second one and then a third one. So the idea is you go really slowly and learn them really well along with their toxic lookalike species rather than trying to learn, you know, hundreds of species at once, which is the approach of a lot of field guides. So we're, I guess it's in, in a sense, it's an ethnography of 10 different species. So each fungus will have maybe 15 or 20 pages devoted to it, so you can see it in all its different forms and shapes and colours and variations under different conditions, and also learn something about its its science and its mycology as well as its ecology and cultural history and then we'll also look at how you 
feet or uh, whether you dry or freeze or or uh, pickle that mushroom and then some recipes as to how to cook it. So it's quite a different approach to the existing field guides about fungi which don't mention edibility at all in Australia. And the big, I guess the really important message here is to go really slow. Mm. So like anything, whether you're learning orchids or birds or whatever, it's, it's a lifetime pursuit. It takes time to learn them into at least. So we're trying to encourage that approach of, because there is that danger of getting it, you know, of confusing a toxic species. We're saying go slow, learn them well, start with one or two or three or four species and stick with those until you get really confident and move on from there. Well, it sounds uh, at least as fascinating as our conversation tonight. <laughs> until it comes out, I guess the best thing for people to do and you, even if you get the book, um, both Sarah and I have done your workshops and found them uh, a- absolutely incredibly enjoyable um, use oh, of time. Good. Okay. Thank uh, you. If, if people want to find out about those, uh, what is your website? Uh, they can go yeah, to my website, which is just my full name, alisonpulio.com. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-P-O-U. L-I-O-T dot com and there's a whole sort of suite of different workshops and forays and seminars on offer there and I'd, I'd love people to come along that would be great. We will put a link up to it on our show notes page as well. Thank you so much for being on Greening the Apocalypse Alison Pulio. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Have a great night. Thanks mate. Thank you. Triple R not for everyone for anyone You are tuned to Triple R. Uh, Green the Apocalypse is the show. We are commencing the wrap-up. Thank you, Brendan, for hitting the buttons in the correct sequence like a champion. That was magical stuff. Colsey, enjoy the island when you get back there. Do not go out in those crazy soils. Yeah, it's dangerous out there. It is indeed. Lion Man, Adam Grubb, what's coming up next week on the show? We're talking off-grid living in the city with Michael Mobbs. Indeed, author of The Sustainable House. Uh, Bushy's my name. The superfluity crew are banging at the door to fill the next two hours of your ear space with what their free... What the hell are you guys doing oh, in studio too? The other studio was full when we got here. Put down the stick. They bum-rushed us. Uh, but with, anyway, we'll see you next Tuesday. But until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.